Living as we do at the beginning of the 21st century, one thing we don't think about very much is a certain type of human relationship that has really existed for most of human history, and that's the one of master and servant or master and slave. The closest we come to it is the employer-employee relationship or the management and labor relationship. And in our time, these relationships are contractual and often adversarial and increasingly temporary. I'm told by friends in the high-tech world industry that if you don't change jobs and shift to a different company every two or three years, you're looked on as a real no no going any place type person. It's like um, you're kind of a loser. You know, it's like you're supposed to jump that. You're supposed to jump ship constantly and be moving from here to there and moving up the, up the world. But in earlier times, there was very little upward mobility of any kind for almost every century of humanity. So people in the lower classes usually never expected to rise beyond whatever condition they were born in and their families were born in. But they did find ways to achieve, and they did that by excelling in the place where they found themselves. They excelled at what they did where they were. That is, rather than be lazy or always try to get away with something, some servants would attain respect and the affection of their masters by doing their very best. And the master-servant relationship could often become one of great mutual affection. You might remember the Roman centurion who sent to Jesus to plead with him to heal not his child but his slave because he loved him so much. And uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, there was a special law enacted by which a temporary slave could become a permanent slave by choice because he loved his master so much. You know, Jews could not be held in bondage by other Jews in the Old Testament more than six years. If, um, you know, if they had a welfare system that God designed for the ancient world. And it wasn't that you would get a check in the month every month from the government. What it was was you could sell yourself to a rich person for six years. And the seventh year, you, you go out from their service and they were to give you um, an income, animals, and tools to go and make your own living to start over again. And that was the welfare system. So if you were so poor that you were destitute and were not going to survive, you would sell yourself to someone and they were not allowed to give you the kind of slave job that a, um, a, like a foreign captive type slave would do, a really rigorous hard thing. They, you were to be treated as a hired person even though you were technically a slave and then after six years you would go free with stuff to get a new start in life. It was a wonderful way to do that back then. But a Jew, if he wanted to, could become a permanent slave. And it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 15. I just want to read it for you, starting at verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vats. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you, but he loves you and your household since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door and he shall be your fellow servant. You take him over to the door and stretch out his ear against the door and it's the old ear piercing way of doing that. And also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free. And he goes on, describes that. But uh, they called it having your ear digged. And uh, that meant you loved your master so much you wanted to become a, a permanent member of the household. The motive for making temporary slavery permanent is love. 
And as I said, even in a freer society without slaves, but um, maybe like in the 1800s or something, you still have a class-based society in a lot of cultures, like in European culture in those days. Servants could distinguish themselves and take great satisfaction just by serving well in whatever capacity they had. And there was often a great bond of affection between servant and master. Well, the New Testament says in many places that Christian slaves or servants glorify God when they perform their service as unto God, that is, wholeheartedly. Whatever their master is like, they're not doing it for their master, they're doing it for the Lord, so they do their work well. And that quality or affection that we seem to be losing sight of in the modern world and the relationship between employers and employees so often can really be seen in the word loyalty. Loyalty. Loyalty which goes both ways between master and servant is not a word you hear much in the business world anymore. It's almost like that's sort of out. But loyalty is a wonderful quality. I've been reading The Lord of the Rings to my children in the mornings lately. And it's one of those books either people love or hate. You know, either like you're totally into it or like, what is that? And uh, we love it in our house. But, but my favorite character is Sam. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, Sam, Sam is just, Frodo is the hero, but Sam is his servant. And Sam's just the greatest guy in the whole world. He, he would just do anything. He's a gardener caught up in this epic grand adventure where everything is on the line. And he's caught up in it because he loves his master so much. It's, it's comforting to believe that people like Sam, Samwise Gamgee, actually exist in the world. Loyal to the bitterest end, loyal beyond all thought of self, loyal even unto death. And with all these epic characters and heroes in the book, Sam's just the greatest guy in my mind. He's just so cool because he's so simple. And his loyalty is what exalts him. Well, what all this talk of masters and servants has to do with Romans 6 is this. We're, we've been talking about sanctification in the book of Romans, personal holiness. And Paul uses a human analogy of servants and masters to describe what our attitude should be towards our service to God. That's why I wanted to prompt your thinking in this area because it's an important part of understanding how to conquer sin in your life by understanding the relationship between a servant and a master. In Romans 6, Paul's been arguing that a, a holy life comes by law or by grace? Thank you. been listening. Good. The, only, the, the law, he says, only stirs up a rebellious nature. It only actually makes us worse sinners because once God says a law, and if you're rebellious in our hearts, we just say, oh, well, there's one I can break. I didn't even thought of that before. It actually makes us even worse. But God's gift of grace, the gift of life, carries with it a desire and a capacity to actually live obediently to God. It actually changes the very nature of our heart. And our union with Christ by faith means that we were, in a very real sense, with Him when He died on the cross for sin and when, he, when God raised Him up to eternal life. We were with Him in that too. And when the New Testament says, in Christ, it's saying we died with Him and we've been raised with Him. Already. So in Christ, as those belonging to Him, we have already died to sin and risen, as verse 4 says of chapter 6, to walk in newness of life. We already possess that if we are in Christ. But though our spirits have come to life, we still inhabit this mortal, fallen flesh, our bodies, which when we get to chapter 7, Paul will talk about this great struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We are not 
what we were, however. When you become a Christian, you're not just a prisoner of your flesh and your wicked habits. We have new capacities now. So we can successfully say no to sin and grow in genuine and true righteousness. We really can. We're not stuck. And to live in the power of these new capacities to progress in sanctification and holiness, one has to apply that awakened will, that new desire to follow God's prescription for holy living. And last week we looked at that prescription. Let's just review it really quick. First he said you need to recognize that you have this union with Christ and have this capacity for victory over sin. You are actually bound to Christ. Verse 6 of chapter 6 he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he, he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer his master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, and this is the second thing, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider, we said it means to reckon or to count. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not a trick. It's the reality that you're affirming with your own heart. You know what? I, I am in Christ. I died to sin, and God has given me these incredible new capacities to live for Him. It's a reality. You need to consider that every day. That needs to be a regular part of your emotional life. Never forget it. Never leave it out. Incorporate it into your very being. God, thank you for joining me to Christ so that in his death my old self has perished. Thank you for opening my eyes and renewing my heart and making me alive. Let me choose today to live every moment as one who is free from the power of sin. That should be a part of your daily prayer life. Something like that. And then there's more. The third thing. You need to present your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. He's not saying this so we can ignore it. This is actually what works. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's that song, take my hands, take my heart, take my eyes, take my mouth, presenting the members of your body to God for as instruments of righteousness. Now, he's not saying that so we won't do it. He's saying that so we will do it. You get that, right? He's not saying, because just knowing that that's in the Bible doesn't mean you're doing it. Sometimes people think, oh, oh, I know those commandments. No, you're actually supposed to do them. So, so I'm serious because very few Christians I know actually do this. Every day, present yourselves to God, your members to God, as instruments of righteousness. I want my body to be your instrument today. Do with me what you would. I will be your servant today. It's what works. And that is where victory lies. Knowing that you are one with Christ in his death and resurrection, counting yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Not pretending, but counting on what the, the promise is of new life in Christ through his death and resurrection to which you are bound 
by the Holy Spirit. And present your members to him as instruments to use. Do that and you will be an effective servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, you'll be surprised at how good you'll feel about your spiritual life. I mean, it is a joy and a pleasure to be in that place. There's liberty there. Really. Sin will always uh, put a genuine Christian into a personal slump, you know. If you get caught up in sin and sinful attitudes or sinful actions or habits or whatever, life will not be good. You'll be just bummed. There may be moments of wicked pleasure in all of that, but no joy. No real satisfaction. But if you follow this prescription, your heart will be lightened and your life will be blessed with God's smile. I mean, he'll just... And you'll know it. He'll be approving of the way you're conducting yourself. And although sinful habits will nip at your heels and show up every now and then and all of that, we're not talking about perfection, you will have real mastery over it. You really will. And you'll never be surprised at your capacity to say no when temptation comes. Verse 14 says the reason a Christian should do this. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is what changes sinners into saints. The foolish people who cling to the law as a means of gaining God's favor, they don't like grace, they're afraid of it. That's what started that whole discussion in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Oh, if you think the law makes people sin more and you think grace is even better, then maybe we should just keep sinning more so there's more grace, right? That's that kind of sarcastic stuff. Teach grace and you're giving people a license to sin. No. No, you're not. That's what he's saying. No, you're not. Not if you teach grace in Christ, our union with Him, and the power of grace to master sin because God's plan is to use His divine favor to awaken our hearts to love Him and to serve Him out of genuine devotion, not some kind of law-keeping thing to earn His approval if we can just do this or do that. It's not how it works. God's grace is the way to master sin. That's the big secret. So in verse 15, Paul returns to this sarcastic comment of verse 1 and kind of repeats it with a little variation. What then? Verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And then he says his favorite little expression, No way! May it never be. Sin just doesn't go with being under grace. Not at all, he's saying. And now he's going to explain by analogy why that isn't so, why, why grace and sin don't go together. And it's related to the ideas we discussed in chapter, I mean, verses 12 and verses 13. You are to present your members to God as his weapons, is even the way that word instrument can be translated, as his instruments or weapons of righteousness. The question of sin is all about who you have chosen to serve. That's what it's about. And Paul starts with a general principle, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Hey, that's really a radical, difficult concept, huh? He's just taking it right out of life. Of course. That's simple enough. The one you give yourself to gets to be called master. 
You know, you don't swear allegiance to America and then present your body as a tool of Osama bin Laden, right? You can't do that and say, I'm a loyal American. I'm just rooting for my buddy Osama. You can't. That doesn't work. You can't say, I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ and present your body to various sins. It just doesn't work. You're not a servant of Christ then, but a servant of your master. And your master is the whatever you present yourself to. And Paul says, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Take your pick. Someone or something is your master. So who is it, he says? Is it sin or is it God? I always like it when non-Christians get on the freedom kick. You know, when you're talking to them, it's like, man, I'm free of all those oppressive rules you people have to live by and all that kind of stuff. You know that kind of attitude? You probably had that attitude once in your life. I did. But, um, you know, they're not constrained and, and they're the captain of their own fate, you know, that Invictus poem, you know, I'm the captain of my fate, I'm the master of my soul. And, and, and you just look at their life and they're totally enslaved to whatever, their passions, their libido, their need for chemical enhancements, their need to use and manipulate people, their anger, their this, their that. I mean, they're slaves. And they're just going about their freedom, you know. And, and Paul's whole point is, you are a slave of something. So pick who your master's going to be. Because every day you choose to give yourself to someone or something. And who's it going to be? What's it going to be? Sins become masters. And you can just watch it happen. If, you know, you t tell a lie over here, and then you tell a lie over there, and pretty soon lying's really easy, and 99% of the time it actually works because you can manipulate people with lies and you don't get caught, and you can deceive people and get your own way. But is that freedom? See, the liar thinks it's freedom. But all you've done is submit yourself to a master of deception and lying. Is a liar free? Is, is a thief free? Is a cheat free? free? Is a fornicator free? No. They've given themselves over to their particular master. Is bitterness freedom? Is arrogance freedom? No. When Bob Dylan was going through his born-again Christian phase, which didn't last very long, he wrote a really good song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And he's right. You're serving somebody. The point was that everyone is a service is a servant to somebody. Nobody's truly free. So if you must serve, why not serve God? The non-Christian can't serve God. It's actually impossible. And religion is no aid to them in the service of God at all. Even the law of God cannot produce service. But grace can. Grace can. Because grace carries with it the new birth new life, a holy, holy disposition of the heart, a transformation. And that's Paul's point in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What a great text. You were slaves of sin. That's what you gave yourselves to. 
But thank God, he says, you became obedient from the heart. Ek, cardias, cardia, cardiac, heart. That's that Greek word for heart. Ek, out of, out of the heart. You became obedient out of your heart. That's the new birth. The person living by law isn't obedient out of his heart. He's obedient from fear. He's obedient from superstition. He's obedient from pride. He's got all kinds of things going on. But he's not obedient from the heart. The grace makes people obedient from the heart. We want to be good. Good is cool. Good looks good. It feels good. It's right. It's something to be loved and exalted and enjoyed. And there it is. So when grace enters a life and a soul is awakened, a heart is changed. And that's the new birth. So the heart, the inside, become obedient, quote, to the form of teaching to which you are committed. That is Christian revelation, God's word, apostolic doctrine, moral instruction. In verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You've got to serve somebody. You were serving sin. Now you're going to serve righteousness. Remember that Old Testament slave who, for the love of his master, chose lifelong service and they're digging his hole in his ear? That's the heart we're talking about. That's the attitude. Service to a worthy master is so much better than service to wickedness. You've got to serve somebody. Serving God leads to righteousness, but serving sin leads... He says serving God leads to righteousness. You might expect him to say serving sin leads to wickedness. But he says serving sin leads to death. It led to death for Adam, and it's led to death for all of Adam's children born of him. Nothing good comes from sin. Nothing. Only death. A true Christian who has received the grace of God and been born again has a new master. He is now owned by somebody else, the eternal creator, the merciful father, the wonderful savior, the living God. And sin just doesn't fit that picture anymore. And it is a picture. The whole dis discussion here of masters and slaves is just an analogy. He's just drawing from life uh, to present this particular aspect of a great truth. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He says, I'm trying to... I'm grabbing something out of life to help you understand this, what's been, what's been going on spiritually. This illustration is from life for Paul's first century readers. I'm, I'm speaking in human terms because you're weak. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in, there's our word, sanctification. In, in Paul's day, the transfer of ownership from one master to another master happened all the time. If, if uh, Maximus bought a slave from Petronius, that slave wouldn't be doing laundry at Petronius' house the next day. The slave has a new master. He doesn't wake up and run home to Petronius' house and say, Here I am, sir, ready for work. Didn't I sell you yesterday? <laughs> what are you doing here? Well, I just wanted to come over here. No, you got a new master. You better hightail it back over to where you... You know what I mean? He doesn't present his body for service to the one who's no longer his master. Of course, what Paul is talking about, which is us, our service, our loyalty, our, our labor, our bodies, is not an issue of 
two masters that are just sort of alike and we've just kind of switched from one to the other. It's a it's huge change in ownership has happened. Colossians 1.13 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So the change in, in service is as big as literally night and day. I mean, it's huge. We once belonged to darkness and sin and rebellion and all that is corrupting in God's good world. We serve wickedness, but by God's grace, all that is good and pure and right and true is our new owner. And so now we present our members to that. And when we wake up every day, we must present ourselves, our, our bodies, our loyalty to that which is good and true and wholesome and of God. Right? You should do that. Consider what a privilege God has given you to let you be a servant of righteousness. What a great privilege that is. He could have left you in darkness and been perfectly just to do that. Because that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Just to be left in darkness, groping around, unsatisfied, in the service of a tyrant who at the end of our service to him only plans our death. But when Jesus purchased you with his blood for God's kingdom, for his mastery, you not only have the honor of serving him, but the end of it is eternal life and glory in his presence forever. That's a pretty good deal. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. Isn't that great? Then Paul concludes with the one, one of the most well-known sentences in the Bible, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life. When we get to chapter 8, we'll see something even more wonderful about God's free gift. The eternal life he grants us, it, it does much more than make us servants in the kingdom of life. It actually makes us sons and daughters, children. So our position isn't even one of slaves, but after this transference has been made, we're actually adopted into his family and made sons and daughters, adopted into the divine family. It's an absolute wonder. But let's stay with our idea of service here because we're in chapter 6 today. That's what we need to do, and that's how we need to think every day. How are you going to wake up tomorrow? What are you going to do? Who are you going to present yourself to? If I say, well, nobody, I'll just kind of keep the way I'm going. Well, you've already made a decision. Because your natural inclination is going to be the wrong side. You're going to wake up ready to combat the world? Is your attitude going to be, I need to fight to get mine? Is your attitude, are you thinking, it's going to be the whole world's against me, I've got to protect myself? Are you going to wake up with some old wound you're going to use to justify being bitter at so-and-so and angry with this and upset about that? Are you going to wake up thinking about your favorite sin and contemplating a way to nourish and cherish it and feed it? Or will you wake up tomorrow 
and the next day and, and the day after that, presenting yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness for his use. That's sanctification when you do that. And the reality is God has set you free from sin and its power so you can live a saintly life. Uh, you know, um, the word saint just means a holy one. It's a word used of every Christian in the New Testament. There aren't saints that are like special divine stamped people. They read the letters of the New Testament. It says, to the saints who are in Rome, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are... You mean that's only written to Mother Teresa? Is that, is that what it is? It's only written to St. Augustine? No, every Christian is a saint. They're set apart. That's all that word means. A set apart person. And everybody that's been rescued by God is set apart into his kingdom for his divine purposes. And we need to match that with our own decisions. So will you be set apart for God's work wherever you find yourself and whatever you're doing and whoever you're with? Will you present yourself, your members, as his tool for the working day, wherever that should be? Put sin aside. You don't need it. You don't, you don't need it to be happy. And God will be your sustenance and your joy. And he, he will. He really will. Seek him out. You can know his pleasure and approval by living a sanctified life. And you can be a light to a very dark world. There's way too much unhappiness in the church today. Way too many Christians are not happy. And I know why. Much of that unhappiness can be attributed to ungodliness and an unwillingness to follow this simple prescription in Romans chapter 6 for the sanctified life. Because if you do this, I guarantee you, you'll be so much happier. Sin is a bummer. It's tiresome and frustrating and depressing because you know that God is hurt by it and he's displeased by it and so you can't enjoy him like you should. Well, he's not against you. He's, he's right there. He's right in the fight with you against sin and he's way provided all the means you need to have victory over that sin and he's right there wanting to help you and he wants you to be happy and to find happiness, true happiness, freedom and being free from sin and in joyful service to Him. So present yourself to God tomorrow when you get up and the day after that and every day after that. And I guarantee, you know, there aren't many guarantees in this world that are really valid. But I will uh, stretch myself, put myself on the line here a little bit. If you do that, you present yourself to God every day, you will never regret it. I guarantee you'll never regret it. That's how sure I am that it will abundantly bless your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's good word and for the life that he lived, because I know he lived this in his own life, Father. And what a joy there is in simple obedience and being a good servant of a faithful and wonderful master. A master, it's a privilege to be in his household. A master, it's a privilege to serve. A master whose glory is shared with the servants. What a great joy that is. Lord, help us be faithful in our service to you and remind us of the prescription you've laid out for us. Don't let us get bound by the world and so caught up and so busy that we just forget. Let us be different by your own plan, your own scheme. And help us be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.